coming up on today's episode. It's very rarely can we say one thing is, is sort of affecting a sort of situation. It's such a multifactorial aspect that affects how the person's health would be, how their weight would be. It's certainly never just one thing. Hello and welcome to Colorful Layers, a space for colorful conversations to inspire a better you and me. My name is Moto Taje and I am a storyteller as well as a former radio broadcaster. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat to some of the world's bright minds, strong voices as well as experts. On today's conversation or episode, um, while very highly sensitive and personal, I also believe that it is quite important. Um, It's one of those things that I have had other people come up to me and open up about their struggles. And because I have also had my own personal experiences with it, I have to say that I am quite invested. There is a lot of information out there when it comes to how can one achieve weight loss, which sometimes this can be a good thing but also it can be a bad thing. So you have information like count your calories, intermittent fasting, keto, do this type of exercise and so on and so forth. And for me, you know, for somebody like me, uh, that can sometimes become quite confusing. I also describe this conversation or this topic as important because just in South Africa alone, it is estimated that 31% of men and a whopping 68% of women are obese. And there was an analysis that was done by the WHO that shows that one in five adults and one in 10 children and teenagers are actually projected to be obese by December 2023. So if you're in a place where you have decided, or maybe you've already started on your journey, but you feel as though nothing is working, then I believe that you have come to the right place. Today's episode, will be looking at the various barriers that could be uh, to achieve achieving healthy weight loss. My guest is a registered dietitian and a nutritional consultant by the name of Lila Brooke. She will be taking us through a basic introductory level to what those barriers look like. And you will instantly pick up on Lila's passion for her work, as well as the empathy and expertise that she holds for her patients and some of the subject matters. So go and grab that cup of coffee and let's get right into it. Welcome, Lila, to Colorful Layers, and thank you so much for taking time out of your precious weekend to join us for this recording. It is such a pleasure, and it's so lovely to be speaking to you today. Amazing. Um, I think before we get right into it, often when you go see a professional like yourself, you don't usually get the chance to actually know a little bit about the man or the woman behind the work. You just like, you know, get right into the issue and try to get help. So can you just indulge us just a little bit and tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Lila Brooke. I'm a registered dietitian, as you mentioned. Um, I've been in private practice since 2006. Um, I'm from Cape Town originally. I studied at UCT um, and I did my master's to stay in a bachelor of correspondence. Um, and so I've been in Joburg um, since the end of 2004, which feels quite recent, but no longer is that recent. Um, and I, so I live in Joburg, um, I married with two kids, they're seven and 10 years old. Um, and so it's always very interesting from a practical application point of view to see how, um, how, it, how possible or not possible it is to feed children <laughs> um, because sometimes the theory and the practice does not necessarily connect. Actually, I'd say it virtually never connects. Um, but so that's, that's always interesting. And um, my husband also just reminded me, I have to mention my dog. So I have a cocker spaniel. He's a rescue. His name's Fudge. And I always joke that, that not only can you eat fudge, but you, you know, not only can you have dogs named fudge, but you eat fudge too. No foods are off limits. That's my general kind of principle. So yeah, that's, that is always very important. And my main focus areas are, um, chronic diseases of lifestyle, sports nutrition, um, digestive disorders like IBS, celiac disease, um, and eating disorders, emotional eating, uh, body image in children and adolescents, and um, also nutritionomics, which is a study of DNA in relation to nutrition. Um, I did my master's on childhood body image in eight to nine-year-old girls, so that's always very important and um, a big sort of area 
that I really focus on and I'm interested in and care very strongly about. Um, so yeah, so that's my sort of main focus areas as well. And yeah, I just am very passionate about nutrition, about making sure that people have a good understanding and be able to wade through all the kind of media noise to have a better understanding. And also to make sure that um, people don't get overwhelmed because it is so much out there that can get a bit confusing. True, that is so true. Um, uh, uh, I didn't know about the dogs and fudge, so I'm definitely yes. going to note. <laughs> yes. But you've got quite a, you know, um, like an interesting uh, resume. So I'm quite keen. How do you end up in this uh, line of work? Where, where did this passion come from? So I'd always sort of gravitated more towards sort of um, the biology sort of side of things at school. That was always where I was sort of more passionate. Um, and then when I was um, about 15, my dad was diagnosed with diabetes. And so I became very interested in terms of what he could eat and what he couldn't eat and sort of how the disease worked, obviously. And obviously there were changes in the house in terms of eating in general. Not that we're ever unhealthy eaters, but there's obviously more of a focus at that point. And, um, and then I just sort of found out more about dietetics. He actually went to a dietitian at the time. And um, I started to discover more about the profession and the scope because there's that general misconception that all dietitians do is weight loss, which is definitely not the case, um, because there's lots more, as I just mentioned, with my various focus areas. Um, and then I found out that there was, you know, an application in terms of there's more sort of creativity that can be involved with people would think. I enjoy interacting with people and helping them, obviously, and joining them on their journey and seeing their progress and whatever sort of, um, whatever their specific goals are. And, um, yeah, and I just, I really just loved so many aspects of it. So I, I loved studying it. I loved doing it. It's just a huge passion of mine. Alrighty. So initially when we met, uh, before obviously settling on this topic, which is barriers to healthy weight loss, um, mm. we were quite undecided as to what could be the right approach in terms of the title? And you mentioned yes. that obviously, you know, there's just a sensitivity triggering nature around the, the, the the topic around weight loss. So can you share yes. a little bit on that and why is that? Yeah, I think, you know, like weight loss itself is is just a complete minefield in terms of obviously there's a lot of people who, I mean, it's, it's a normal thing, I would say, for people to be sensitive about their weight. Certainly weight loss itself um, is associated with often deprivation, restriction. Um, it's usually, you know, something that people feel is an ordeal. And it's certainly not something that anybody wants to do. Nobody says that they want to lose weight for fun. You know, it's generally something that's considered to be an arduous task. Um, and so when one sort of looks at sort of the concept of, you know, what what we were discussing, the topic was originally going to be, which is why, why you can't lose weight. Sometimes it mm. can be quite... Um, this triggering is the best word. It can be sort of very sensitive sort of topic for many people. Um, it can create a lot of sort of discomfort with those kinds of terms and that kind of concept. So I prefer to kind of remove that element from it and to focus on it that if someone, that if there is a need to lose weight or desire to lose weight, whether it's for medical reasons or otherwise, to rather approach it from a more sort of positive lifestyle, kind of a more, almost more of a relaxed approach. Like often my patients will come and say, oh, I ate so badly, you're going to shout at me. And I've never mm. shouted at anyone. Like, okay, <laughs> there, was, there was one exception. There was a 16-year-old that refused to eat anything but bananas because he'd watched a YouTube video. That was the only time that I shouted. But in general. Um, so in, in most cases, it's a case of that, um, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be something that is uh, taken over your life and is miserable, etc. And the reason why I wouldn't shout at someone, especially under those circumstances, is already someone feels so much guilt and there's so much around their eating habits and emotional side, etc. that shout at them is unreasonable. So um, I just prefer to kind of have a better, sort of more relaxed, more moderation um, looking at it more holistically, looking at it in terms of other factors, but rather than it just being like, okay, well, you ate a chocolate, so you're bad. I, lo I love that. I love that. And also considering that, you know, out there, there's just a lot of information. Some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. So mm. you also um, emphasized the wor word healthy. Um, yes. is, is there a reason around that? 
Yes. So there are so many methods that people use to lose weight, most of the time out of desperation, that are certainly not healthy. I mean, you know, there's diet pills, there's the extreme diets, there's ridiculous things like people, okay, I know this is, sounds awful, but it happens where people have tapeworm eggs um, that wow. allow tapeworms to hatch in them. Yes, to lose weight. Yes, it happens. Um, there's random things people find on the internet, like seeds and various other potions. And there's so much out there that, um, that people would often try, as I said, out of desperation, um, even though they know that it's not necessarily going to be ideal for their overall health and their long-term health. But unfortunately, whether it's because of the person's own desires of how they should look, whether it's social media pressure or cultural pressures, whatever it may be, people will resort to many unhealthy measures. And it's so important to be able to link the two and not make it that healthy weight loss becomes sort of like an oxymoron, but rather case of mm. that you can really like marry those ideas together and that you can lose weight in a balanced, healthy way and a sustainable way without like giving up your entire life, basically. I, I love that. And I've even noticed that on social media, there's a lot more, I, I guess, social influencers that are coming out mm. and trying to spread the word around balance instead of yes. just all these crazy restricted methods. Yes, yes, definitely. And which is great. But unfortunately, you know, there's the other side of the coin where just like you've got all the positive social media influence, you've also got a lot of negative as well. So, you know, there's a lot of like body positivity, which is great, but then you still have crazy things that people do. I mean, I'm always watching those videos of people showing what they ate in a day. Um, and sometimes it's scary, like they eat nothing and then it's celebrated. So it's, um, it certainly isn't a simple sort of thing that social media is necessarily positive now, but if you know where to look, you can find some positive influence. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, in the introduction uh, to this segment, uh, I mentioned the word obesity uh, based on the stats around South Africa, Africa. And I think for me personally, the use of the word kind of creates a picture of somebody who is extremely overweight to a point of being unable to do everyday activities, right? Yes. But I remember a few years ago <laughs> receiving the shock of my life during one of those Discovery Wellness Day, uh, where yes. I think they said that I'm moderately overweight or moderately obese, according to my yes. BMI, which was a bit of a shocker. So can you just educate us a little bit around these terms, obesity, BMI, being overweight. How does that work? Sure. And obviously because it's so personal. Sure. So when it comes to these sorts of classifications, it's based on the BMI. So the BMI is your weight divided by your height squared. So, I mean, you square your height and you divide your weight by that square of the height. That isn't confusing. Um, so if your BMI is under 18.5, you'd be considered underweight. If it's 18.5 or 18.6 to 24.9, that's quote-unquote normal weight, then 25 to 29.9 would be overweight, and above 30 would be considered obese. So then you get various sort of designations within that, like 30 to 34.9 is, is obese class 1, 35 to 39.9 is obese class 2, and above 40 is obese class 3. So that's how the classifications work. Two sort of things I must mention about that, though, is that Firstly, I personally don't like to use labels. So if mm. someone says, oh, that means I'm obese, I don't focus on that. Because as you're saying, like the obese sort of word has such a negative connotation. And when it's being referred to in this form in terms of BMI classification, it's not an emotional classification. It's just like a medical classification. But we can't ignore mm. that there's other connotations to the word obese that is very negative. So I don't like to use the word obese. Um, I don't even like to use the word overweight. I don't use those words at all. Um, because, you know, people use enough of that negative language with themselves. I don't need to make it worse. But um, it's more a case of looking at, okay, well, this is where you are now. And, you know, where do you want to be? Rather than focusing on the classifications. Um, secondly, in terms of the BMI, there's a lot of debate about it as to whether it's a meaningful um, use, a meaningful measure of weight. And the reason for that is that if you have someone who has a high muscle mass, for example, especially someone who's quite short, so say like a bodybuilder who's very short but has a high muscle mass, because of the fact that their weight will be higher and their, their height is relatively obviously low if they're quite short, it will result in them having quite a high BMI. So they could technically come up with a BMI um, easily in the obese category, but they're actually very, very muscular. So, and potentially even have a very low body fat. So 
I don't rely on BMI 100%. It gives you some indication, but we obviously have to take the person in terms of looking at them holistically. And that's why my practice, I always measure body composition as well. So looking at fat mass and their muscle mass, et cetera. And also um, waist circumference is a very useful measure as well. Because if someone's waist measurement is, waist circumference measurement is high, and we'll get into that more when we talk about insulin resistance, then if their waist measurement is high, if they, um, even if their weight is good and in the ideal range, it could still be considered um, actually as being classically overweight mm. and vice versa. So it's important just to kind of look at the individual person and not just simply classify it solely as, well, that is your weight, that is your height, therefore that's where you fall on the spectrum. Um, and I really like the concept of N equals one, which is essentially that every person, so you, uh, if you ever look at a sort of a, journal article, scientific journal, they'll refer to the number of people in a study and they'll say, okay, there were a thousand people or there were 15 people, whatever. And they put N equals whatever the number of people there were. So N being like the number of participants. But N equals one, that concept is that every person is an individual and that they don't have mm. to have various rules put on them, but rather to look at who they are and what their individual needs are. Sure. And I guess that's why you can't literally copy and paste like once somebody's journey and then say, oh, they did A, B, C, D, and then you're going to apply that and you think that you'll have the same results. Of course. Exactly. Which is why when yeah. people say, oh, you know, my friend saw us doing so well, so I gave my eating plan to them. Oh, that's okay. I'm like, well, you know, it was meant for you. That's okay. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I, don't have um, I, have to, yeah. I must mention that I appreciate how how you have such an empathetic approach, um, you know, to your patients or to individuals regarding this. So thank you. We know that as as <laughs> we know that as individuals um, or who are on the journey of wanting to you know healthily lose weight, um, it is obviously for a number of reasons. Some of them it's for physical appearance, confidence. I know that uh, for me it you know it was just about how it it really affected my perception of self, my confidence, um, and it also even affected how I interact socially. So I'm just mm. curious to know what are some of the common reasons you see from some of your uh, clients. Yeah. So that, I mean, what you just mentioned, I think is a very, very common reason. Um, And it's also a very interesting reason because I think a lot of people, you know, obviously if they're very overweight and it affects their confidence, they lose weight and might improve their confidence. But it's also very hard to have a sustainable weight loss sort of result if you're only basing it on appearance. Because Mm -hmm. then when you've lost a few kilos and those genes are a bit looser, then there's less of a motivation. So I think what makes them successful in sustainable weight loss is to focus on how do they feel, health aspects, fitness, not just looking at whether they fit into clothes better, but also at the same time I recognize that obviously confidence is a big one in that respect. Mm -hmm. So so appearance, self-confidence, self um, sort of love, I guess, comes into it. But at the same time, um, health is probably the biggest other reason. Um, I mean, obviously, the people who want to lose a few kilos because they've got like a family wedding coming up and they need to look good in the photos. But most of the time, I would say it's it's either sort of general sort of weight loss because the person feels uncomfortable or for, for health reasons. So they might have had some mm. sort of health square, scare. They might have maybe been told they need to lose weight pre an operation which happens also quite often. Um, but yeah, so health health and sort of appearance probably are the, the main reasons. Amazing. And speaking of health, so there is also a serious side to being, um, you know, overweight. Um, yes. So can you share what those, um, like how, like how that can affect you or your health? Certainly. So if someone is very overweight, and I mean, obviously we're talking about having a high fat mass, I'm not talking about if someone has a high muscle mass and that causes their weight to be higher, but say they have a particularly high body fat percentage, 
Um, that can cause problems such as um, chronic disease of lifestyle, so like diabetes, heart disease. Um, it can increase the risk of arthritis and brain problems in general. Um, it can be a complication for pregnancy and for childbirth um, and, um, and also for fertility as well. It can be um, obviously the big thing in terms of mental health, which is I think also what we sort of touched on now, that, you know, that if someone does have sort of, um, if they if they're very overweight, they might be at a higher risk of um, depression. Um, it can affect sleep patterns because there's a higher risk of sleep apnea, which is where you sort of stop breathing while you are sleeping. And that is very much weight related. Mm. So it, there are so many things that it affects. It also increases the risk of cancer as well. There's a strong link between um I hate the word obesity, but we'll go with it, between obesity mm. and breast cancer um, and other cancers as well, like colon cancer. So really it affects so many things, which is, it's complicated because obviously if someone feels good about themselves and they're happy where they are, then mm. that's positive. We don't want to create sort of a sort of body dissatisfaction issue if there isn't one. But at the same time, we have to recognize the health implications as well. Yes. All right, so we're going to get yes. into um, these barriers and just unpack them a little bit. And I think because I have vested interest in this one, what is insulin resistance? Um, and I guess, why does it matter? So insulin resistance is um, sort of, it's not necessarily about having high insulin levels, but maybe let's backtrack in terms of what insulin does. So insulin is a hormone that's involved with bringing glucose into your cells. So glucose or sugar, whatever you want to think of it as. But essentially... Think of it like a key, and it's the key that opens a door, the door being um, sort of entrance to a cell. If you can think about it that way, if this is too obscure, then tell me. But so basically, the insulin acts as a key to open the cell to allow glucose to come in. So essentially, what happens then is you, but you eat whatever food you eat. It gets broken down through digestion into glucose, sugar, then it's used by the cells. So it's taken up by the cells and that's how it then performs all the various jobs it needs to do. So if you have a situation where um, your body isn't, system isn't functioning as it should, obviously it's going to affect various aspects of your body and your body won't be able to work as it should. So in terms of then the insulin, because it allows the glucose to come into the cell, it has a very important role in terms of blood sugar management and obviously various functions within the body. In the case of insulin resistance, it becomes a situation where it's almost like the insulin is less effective. So I always compare it to someone who might have some sort of hearing difficulty. So it's not the case mm. of that someone who is hearing impaired in whatever way doesn't have ears necessarily. They have ears, but the ears aren't as sensitive to the sound around them. So therefore, they cope better when the sound is louder. So in the same way, if you have a situation where you're, you have insulin resistance, it generally or it can often mean that you do have enough insulin. It's enough insulin circulating in the body, but the, the body can't sense that insulin as well as it should. So it's a case of that. It's almost like the body has a higher need then for insulin in order to be able to sense it. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 okay. no, definitely. So, so then what happens is that because of that, very often your insulin levels can become higher because your body's kind of constantly producing more and more insulin in order to get the same effect. And that's why very often people might test and have high insulin levels. But the insulin levels on its own, it's not necessarily a guaranteed indication of insulin resistance. There's usually got to be other mm. elements involved as well, which um, we can also discuss. So, um, yeah, so this, uh, that's basically how the insulin resistance works. Um, and a lot of people may have insulin resistance and actually not even know. Um, oh, it can my be word. sort of undiagnosed, undiagnosed for many years. Sure. And is it something that, uh, I don't know, lifestyle gets you to that point or is it hereditary? How do you find yourself in the situation? So there certainly can be hereditary aspects to it, um, but certainly diet and lifestyle, uh, that would be sort of the biggest act, most likely. So if someone is, um, if they have quite a poor diet, if they have a lot of refined carbohydrates, so like um, all the sort of white starches, white breads, white rice, um, high sugar diet, very little activity, um, sort of generally sort of a lifestyle that's not ideal from a health point of view, then there is a greater chance or greater risk of insulin resistance. Um, there also is um, sort of a link in terms of, um, this is where the waist measurement thing comes in that I was mentioning earlier. So if, if your waist circumference measurement for women is above 88, 
and for men is about is above about 103, 104, then there's a greater chance that there's insulin resistance present as well. So sure. it's not necessarily only something you can tell, okay, well, I have my insulin checked and it's fine. Because your insulin levels might not necessarily always be extremely high. There can be other indications that um, that may actually be an issue or may be relevant in that respect as well. Mm-hmm. Sure, scary that you could actually be, you know, functioning every day and you have this thing, but you don't even sure. know about it. Yes, <laughs> and um, sure. I read an article where they also called it a monster hormone because it presents weight gain, inflama- mm. inflammation and chronic disease. Is this correct? Yes. And if so, can you share more on those? Certainly. So um, the problem is that insulin is a fat storage hormone. So if your insulin levels are high, you've got a greater risk of storing more fat, essentially. So um, there's a risk basically with insulin resistance. There's a higher chance then of weight gain or being overweight. But in the same way, if you have insulin resistance, it's often it's harder to lose weight. So it's a bit of this vicious circle. Because of the high insulin being a fat storage hormone, it's more conducive to weight gain and less conducive to weight loss. Therefore, harder to lose weight and easier to gain weight. And the fact that the person's overweight means it's hard, it's easier to stay in that insulin resistant state. Certainly, that is the case. Um, In terms of also, uh, you mentioned, uh, what was the second one you mentioned? So, you mentioned the um, um, overweight. Uh, Inflammation. Inflammation and chronic disease. Yes, it is. So what tends to happen is that because um, insulin resistance is associated with fat loss, sorry, with fat gain rather, what does tend to happen as well is that um, fat itself is a very pro-inflammatory organ. People don't think of fat as an organ, but it actually is. Um, And because of that, fat also, it produces, or maybe organ, or should we say it's a tissue, whatever, either way. So fat is very pro-inflammatory. And it also um, produces its own hormones, incidentally, which is interesting. And it produces chemicals that can actually increase inflammation. So it in itself, that itself causes more inflammation. Um, And so that is an issue in terms of causing more of a pro-inflammatory state. And in addition to that, often resistance is associated with other other chronic diseases, such as Mm. hypertension or high blood pressure, such as high cholesterol or other sort of issues in terms of cholesterol levels, such as high triglycerides. Um, so it, it functions often in a situation where it's not just about, oh, the person can't lose weight, but in terms of the multifactorial issue as well. Um, and also often insulin resistance is a precursor to diabetes. So mm. it sort of all kind of connects together in terms of the effect it has. And obviously then diabetes has its own potential repercussions. And so if I'm sitting there listening to this, how do I, can I assess like quick signs that I can look for to know if whether or not I could potentially be insulin resistant and what do I need to do? So insulin resistance, I mean, if you sort of are without any blood tests, it's just physical signs. So Mm. a big one is you can measure your waist circumference. So as I said, for women, if it's above 88, for men, if it's above 103, 104, there's differing opinions. That's why there's two numbers I just gave. Um, So if your waist measurement falls into one of those numbers, um, then that would be the case that you do have a higher risk for insulin resistance. Um, Also weight gain. Very often there's a family history of diabetes. And also very often there's something called acanthosis nigricans, where you have darkening of the skin, especially sort of Mm. on the neck or maybe even the face. I'm not talking about pigmentation, like say when a woman is pregnant and she's kind of has pigmentation from that or pigmentation from the sun. But it's more a darkening of the skin that mm. um, that would happen sort of around the folds of the skin. So, like say the neck is is a common area, um, and also people with insulin resistance are quite prone to skin tags. Um, doesn't mean everyone's skin tags is insulin resistance, but often there's a link. Um, and um, also, people with insulin resistance generally have more of like an apple shaped body, where they have more fat stored around the stomach, hence the waist circumference rather than sort of a pear shape where the weight is more distributed around sort of the hips and thighs. Um, so it's it's a case of that those are some signs. It doesn't mean that you have, if you have any of those, you automatically have insulin resistance, but it is a good idea just to obviously check these things out and see where you stand with it. All right. Okay. That's so interesting. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, there was something else you wanted to mention in addition to this topic. Yes. So in terms of um, PCOS, so PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's basically a hormonal disorder 
um, that affects women sort of in what they call reproductive age. Um, so generally during the time they've been menstruating. And it basically is characterized by a combination of symptoms. So that would be things like irregular periods. They may have um, ovarian cysts. They may have infertility issues. Um, they may notice excessive body hair or hirsutism. So there's various sort of symptoms that classify the syndrome. Um, they may also experience hair thinning or even what we consider sort of male pattern baldness. So balding in a way that would be expected to be seen more in men. And acne as well is a big um, symptom as well. And it's a case of that insulin resistance can be one of those symptoms as well. So women who have insulin resistance, there's a strong chance they also have PCOS that they would need to be checked for. Um, very sure. often with PCOS, there's a diabetic grandparent, which sounds, I know, a bit random, but there's often a link with that. Yeah. And I think the thing that comes to me here is that that's where empathy and sensitivity needs mm. to really play a role because you might come across somebody and you just judge them for, you know, you, their appearance, but you don't know that yes. this person is actually going through quite a lot. 100%. Um, so I always feel very, very strongly that when someone walks into my office, it doesn't matter what their weight is, what the age is, what the reasons are for being there. They all are individuals that are looking for help for their various reasons mm -hmm. and their various needs. And I think that for so many of them, especially for someone who's very overweight, they've been very sort of sidelined by the medical profession very often. Uh, very often things are disregarded. Well, you know, you just need to lose weight. Like, whatever's wrong with them, you know, you're diabetic, you are, you have high blood pressure, you have a sore toe, whatever it is, it's their weight. Um, and mm -hmm. it's so important just to recognize that all of them are people that, that they individually are, um, have their own needs and one can't sort of disregard things just based solely on weight in their situation, isn't it? Sure, sure. Sure. So we're going to still continue or uh, move on to um, hormonal issues. Um, and I just want to yes. maybe start off with like a basic breakdown, just like what are hormones and what are their, mm. you know, functional purpose in our bodies? Sure. So hormones are proteins in the body that are chemical messengers that essentially act on various sort of body components, organs, tissues, cells, etc., to create certain results. So not all hormones necessarily relate to weight. Um, there are various hormones that do all sorts of different things. But, um, I mean, everybody's heard of thyroid hormones and everyone's familiar with estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. But there are other hormones as well that are involved in general in terms of the way the body functions. Mm, 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 mm. And so um, you mentioned that there's also key ones that could potentially be barriers um, in this topic. Sure. So the most common one that everyone always thinks about when it comes to weight is thyroid or thyroid hormones. So um, the thyroid is a gland in your neck that secretes thyroid hormones and essentially is controlled by another hormone that's secreted by the pituitary gland, which is the base of the brain, and it acts on that thyroid gland to reduce thyroid hormones. So thyroid hormones are very important in terms of regulating your metabolism or your metabolic rate. And when those thyroid hormone levels are low and in small amounts, it can lead to a slowing of the metabolic rate and then obviously weight gain as well. Um, and it has other, I mean, if we're looking at symptoms of an underactive thyroid, sort of other signs other than weight gain, maybe, for example, once again, hair loss, constipation, mm. um, extreme fatigue or exhaustion, and sensitivity to cold. So obviously now we're just sort of a bit chillier the weather, sometimes it's hard to tell, but if it's like the middle of summer and you're in three layers of jerseys, that obviously would be more of a cold sensitivity and potentially an issue. Um, so the thyroid hormone, your thyroid could be underactive because your thyroid gland isn't functioning as it should, or there could be some sort of issue in terms of the way that that sort of messaging process happens in terms of the brain telling your thyroid to produce thyroid hormones. So there's various factors in that respect. Um, but it's a very easy blood test to do to check whether there's an issue. And if your thyroid is underactive, you can take thyroid hormones and that can help to regulate it and obviously would then help in turn if weight is a, is a consequence of that for you. Um, leptin is also a hormone related to weight. So Leptin is not something that people always necessarily think of or, or familiar with. So essentially, it's produced by the actual fat cells. So as I was saying, fat does secrete various hormones and various sort of other chemical messages. 
And um, so what leptin does is it helps you to actually regulate your appetite levels. So it basically then would signal to the brain, okay, we've got enough fat stores. We don't need to eat necessarily more. So now your appetite would be reduced and you would also um, potentially also increase your energy expenditure. So increase sort of like your calorie burn naturally throughout the day. Um, and therefore it would help in terms of keeping you from overeating or keeping you from feeling like you need more food. However, if you have something called leptin resistance, which is leptin resistance in addition to insulin resistance, if that is the case, then that means that that signaling process is kind of a bit sort of affected negatively or a bit impaired. And that can then mean that you're more likely to mm. overeat and more likely to gain weight. Um, by sort of the, I guess one can say the antagonist to that is ghrelin, which is otherwise known as the hunger hormone. And ghrelin mm. is made in the stomach and actually stimulates your appetite. So it then actually tells you to eat and would increase before you eat and would decrease after eating. So they found that in people who are obese, that actually their ghrelin levels can be higher and therefore can be one of the factors that cause them to overeat and more likely to gain weight as well. Um, then there's cortisol, which is produced by the adrenal glands, and that is a stress hormone that helps to control your energy breakdown or metabolism. And when your levels of cortisol are higher, especially if you're under stress, that can lead to an increased appetite as well, and also more likely of accumulation of fat in the abdominal area. Um, and then lastly, there's adiponectin, which is a hormone that is produced by the fat cells and is involved with keeping your glucose level, your glucose metabolism and fat metabolism under control. And if your adiponectin levels are high, that can mean that you have sort of good insulin levels and a lower body weight. But when they are low, it can mean that you're more likely, or it's more likely to be seen in people overweight or obese. So there's so mm. many factors. I mean, obviously hormonal reasons are just part of it. But you can see obviously that there are a lot of hormones that can affect it and can play a role. And I mean, so far, the things that you mentioned, like the hormones, even insulin resistance, some of these can actually work together. Because I learned that if your cortisol yes. levels is really high, that can also affect, you know, your insulin and, and so on and so forth. Yes, yes, exactly. So it, it, often they are interconnected. Um, and it's, that's, I think, is the most why sort of the human body is so incredible and fascinating because it's very rarely, can we say, one thing is, is sort of affecting a sort of situation. It's such a multifactorial aspect in terms mm. of different hormones, different lifestyle factors, um, you know, whatever it may be, certain circumstances that may be present that affect how person, how their person, how the person's health would be, um, how their weight would be. It's certainly never just one thing. Sure. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yes. I feel like each yes. one deserves its own episode. Yes. Alrighty, yes. Um, <laughs> Now mm -hmm. we're going to move on to the next one, which is emotional eating. Very yes. interesting one. Um, yes. What is emotional eating and how does this show up? So emotional eating is something that I must just say that I'm extremely passionate about because I think that it's so under-recognized in terms of how it can affect people and mm. what it actually means. So emotional eating essentially means eating for emotional reasons. Um, but that's sort of like just sort of as an overview. But obviously falling into that is binge eating. Um, also related to that would be um, sort of a temporary state. So say, for example, maybe someone eats when they're stressed more, but they're actually generally the eating is under control. It can even be eating out of habits that every time they go to the movies, they have to have popcorn, not because they're hungry, but because that's movies so it's really one can say anything that sort of has an emotional basis but would cause you to eat for reasons other than hunger basically sure wow um in, in one of the articles that i read they made an example where they said um say for instance when you were sad your grandmother would give you um i don't know a piece of chocolate or whatever and so yes. you started associating yes, chocolate yes, yes. with you know that comfort so that yes. also falls into that 100 yes 100 Yes, sure. that would fall into it. So that's why I don't believe rewarding kids with food. Like, don't mm. go, oh, you've been such a good girl, you can have a chocolate, or you did so well in your race, let's go for an ice cream. You know, like it's, you can, you can have celebratory moments around food, but it shouldn't be that food becomes the reward or the punishment. Um, you know, and it's these messages, I mean, it's a whole separate podcast all on the topic of like 
you know, childhood body image, which, as I said, I'm very passionate about. But um, when I was doing my master's, one of the questions, I spoke to eight and nine-year-olds, and one of the girls who was eight, um, the question they had to answer was, do you feel guilty of eating sweets? And so she said, age of eight, um, well, you know, a school's in chocolate. So I said, well, what about a school's in chocolate? So she said, it's a cure for a broken heart. So I said, great. How many broken hearts have you had? So she said, well, I haven't, but my mom has had. So it's those kinds of messages which seem so innocuous that then create sort of these connections that then last for a lifetime, basically. Sure, that's so deep. And and, and I guess maybe just getting into this then is, um, you know, like I look at, for instance, alcohol, which I think if, you know, you're dealing with somebody who, for instance, has an alcohol, alcohol addiction, it's such a mm. hard thing because it's so rooted in our everyday life. And yes. I think with food as well, when you celebrate, you eat, um, you, mm. like you're saying now, um, when you're having a heartbreak, you're having chocolate mm. or, you know, these mm. messages. Mm. So how does one recognize that uh, actually I am eating emotionally, you mm. know, versus mm. I'm just living my life? Sure. So one of my favorite things to do to kind of pick up these sorts of patterns is a food diary. Like I feel like I talk about food diaries constantly because I feel very strongly <laughs> about how well they work. Um, and so when I say food diary, I mean that you're going to record ideally the time you eat and what you eat. So that's sort of at the most basic level. But you could also add that extra layers of in terms of making notes of where you are when you're eating, um, how you're feeling, are you feeling happy, sad, irritated, angry, whatever the emotions mm. are. Um, and then you can start to pick up patterns like, uh, ah, okay, always I see mid-afternoon is a time that I struggle. Okay, so that's a time that I need to be more aware of because that's a time when I'm more likely to make poor food choices and to not actually be genuinely hungry at that time. Um, or maybe to go, okay, well, I see whenever I'm with this friend, <laughs> they're a bit of a bad influence. So I know that when I'm around them, I need to be extra cautious in terms of my food choices. So food diaries are really, I would say, the best tool and are so, so effective in terms of picking up patterns. But I do think sure. that most people do have some sort of awareness, whether it opens it or not, that when they're eating, they're not necessarily that hungry. For many people, they might even actually not even know when they're hungry because they've overridden their natural hunger cues, which mm. so it can be quite challenging. But in theory, if you are eating when you're hungry and you're stopping when you're full, that's the ideal, best from a weight point of view. Um, and the best way to do that is really go, okay, well, let's keep a food diary for a week, pick up these patterns, and I can start to pay more attention to how hungry I am, what I eat at various times, and without eating the right amount at various points. So it's a very useful tool and definitely one that I'd recommend to help identify that as well. Generally, if one's hungry and one eats something that's, you know, relatively balanced, you're not going to feel guilty, but people would most likely feel guilty after emotionally as a general rule. Mm, mm. Yeah. And, and, and such a complex, you know, and layered uh, topic. So is yes. it possible to overcome it or is it just one of those um, situations that you just need to learn coping or, or, or tools to, to, to deal with it, to manage it? Mm. So it definitely can be overcome. Um, I've seen many people have amazing, amazing success in terms of improving their emotional eating behaviors. Um, depending on how sort of severe it is, it may be something that's obviously a little bit harder to overcome. And it may be something that always sort of lingers and is always sort of hanging around in the back of their mind as a coping mechanism, um, because usually that's what it is. So it's a case of that if they have that awareness in terms of, okay, this is what I'm doing, this is my current pattern, then obviously then there's an opportunity to change it. But unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't necessarily take the necessary steps to improve it and therefore it won't get any answer. And then you also mentioned a lack of knowledge. Yes, yes. So the lack of knowledge, um, I think is it's a tricky one because lack of knowledge also comes into confusing messages. Um, mm. So in other words, um, you know, people might just not know what source to listen to. You know, they saw something on TV, then they had a friend say what worked for them, then there's something that they know worked for them, you know, 15 years ago, and they just feel kind of lost. Or there might be those people who just don't know anything, that have never been exposed to any sort of information around healthy eating and just don't know. So lack of knowledge, there's many things that come into it. 
But um, it's really a case of making sure that your sources for nutritional knowledge and uh, topic, uh, that the sources are reputable. If it's one of those emails that someone sends you where everything is in bold letters and every line is a different color, it's generally not reputable. <laughs> you know those emails, right? Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, there's like fear-mongering, crazy emails that make you feel like, like, no, you're going to die in one second if you ever eat whatever the food is. That's, that's a problem. So this information is really so empowering and um, inspiring. Last but certainly not least, we've got medical. Yes, yes. So obviously we touched on that already in terms of all the hormonal reasons. Mm. But I think also something that comes into weight loss in relation to medical reasons quite a lot is um, anything that physically makes it hard to exercise or to eat healthy. So if someone has um, some sort of injury or disability or medical condition that makes it quite hard to manage their weight. And that's always a challenge. Um, it does mean potentially that based on the situation, they may, may need to have slightly lower calorie intake. They may need to find other forms of physical activity where possible. Um, it may mean that they need to sort of be extra careful where other people get away with a little bit more in terms of their eating. But um, I've had many people who have various reasons or various sort of physical reasons that might otherwise keep them from weight loss, but they still manage to be successful because they find a way to work around that particular condition that they have. So it's always as possible. Um, I think also on that point, I'm just thinking is coming into medical is also medication. So um, say, for example, if someone is on many psychiatric medications, mm. certain, a certain of those medications do have sort of more of an issue in terms of weight gain. They are strongly linked to weight gain, but I feel very strongly that mental health should always come first. So I wouldn't say to someone, well, go for your medication because of that. Um, but certainly it is the case that certain medications are going to, is going to make weight loss harder. And you do need to, in one skin, be extra careful, maybe do extra exercise and just accept that you have to kind of trust the process. It might be a little bit harder or take a little bit longer for you to lose weight than someone else. And where do you then come in? Like, how does your, your role um, come in in, in in situations like this? So um, I do often get referrals from doctors. So whether it's for specific medical conditions that need to be managed from a dietary point of view or whether maybe there's simply a weight issue um, and the doctors might refer because of that. Um, but most people would um, would come of sort of of their own accord um, and it would usually be whether it's sort of straight weight loss, whether it's for um, some medical condition that they realize that dietary changes are necessary for. Um, and I mean, as I mentioned earlier, eating disorders are a big passion of mine as well. So I do work closely with um, some psychologists as well to and psychiatrists to manage eating disorders. Um, and I think on that point, binge eating disorder is a big one also that affects weight as well so binge eating disorder in itself i guess comes into emotional eating but is a big reason for weight gain and um so for a lot of people they might find that they have episodes of eating where they feel out of control which obviously would be more likely to lead to weight gain as well but more importantly than that is managing the emotional side around it and accepting that mm. obviously there is some sort of emotional aspect to it that needs to be dealt with and they need a multidisciplinary approach to approach that. So if there's anyone listening who finds that they have um, periods of time where they struggle to control their eating, they feel out of control at the time, they find then that those episodes of overeating is then accompanied with a lot of guilt and shame um, and they really struggle to manage it. I think it's important to just remove that stigma and to accept that it's also okay to just realize that maybe you need a bit of extra help and to get the help that's needed and address that accordingly. Because sure. it, it's, there's just so much negative effect that those kinds of issues can have on one's um, self-esteem and mood and just general sort of sense of self. So it's important to, to keep that in mind as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier on, um, you know, uh, finances. So I'm kind of keen to know mm. if somebody's perhaps unable to afford the services of a Lila. Yes. Um, yes. Are there options <laughs> out there? <laughs> Another way, but that yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I mean, there are. Um, I mean, I don't want to mention specific like places, so I want to be endorsing. But I mean, there are sort of 
some sort of weight loss program, slimming club sort of things that can work. But just check that they're ones that don't cut out free groups. I don't like these sorts of places that go, well, you can never look at like profita ever again because, you know, mm. you will gain 50 kilos overnight. So it's got to be balanced in terms of having sort of the carbohydrates and the proteins and the fats and, and have a balance. Um, there's also... Um, there's a couple of sort of potential online resources which can be more reputable. Um, but just be wary in terms of those sources. You don't want to kind of do anything too crazy. Um, just be wary of that. And then also most of the big public hospitals do have dietitians there that you would be able wow. to see potentially for free. Yes, I can attest to that. I did my community service at Helen Joseph Hospital and we were there every day. Um, and so... There's most of the big hospitals. Actually, I mean, I'd say all of them do, but not all of them necessarily have outpatient clinics. So your big hospitals like the Jen, Ara, um, I mean, obviously I'm talking about Joburg now, um, Kevin Joseph, as I mentioned, although it was a while ago that I was there, so I'm assuming they still do. But they have outpatient, outpatient clinics where you could see a dietitian in there if you wanted. So that Amazing. is also an Amazing. option. Yeah. And, and Lila, how do we get a hold of you? Are you on social media? Um, is there a contact? Sure. So my website address is www.lilabrook.co.za. So that's spelled L-I-L-A-B-R-U-K. So lilabrook.co.za. Uh, my Instagram is lilabrook underscore dietitian. Uh, Facebook is lilabrook dietitian, one word. Um, and my email address is lilabrook at gmail.com. So all of those options. Yeah. So you can go to my website and get more info if you'd like. Amazing. Amazing. And when we obviously uh, share the episode, we'll also link uh, to those details. Any last thoughts that you would like to share as we wrap up? So I think, you know, a last thought is that if you are listening to this and you're struggling with your weight, that just to know that you're not alone, that there's always a solution. And it doesn't necessarily always mean that that solution is depressing and restrictive and horrible, but more about just finding really what works for you. And everybody's situation is different. So don't feel that if something worked for someone else and doesn't work for you, that you failed. It's all about finding your personal solution. And it is out there and just don't lose hope. A huge thank you to my guest, Lila Brooke. Uh, be sure to catch her on her socials. And before you log off, be sure to also subscribe to our channel so that you can always catch our latest episodes. Your comments, your questions, and episode suggestions are also highly welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And if you're a brand or a business that would like to chat about collaborations, do drop us an email, colorfullayerspodcast at gmail.com. Cheers for now.